Uh, there was a study done, a, a survey, a poll, and they surveyed Christians' attitudes on the death penalty. So they, they surveyed as many people as possible and said, do you support the death penalty? Do you not support the death penalty? And they tried to analyze the results. Um, I don't know if you heard about this. It was pretty widely talked about. Um, 42% of baby boomers, so, so people who self-identified as Christian, uh, who are baby boomers, boomers, so for the study, they were born between 1946 and 64. Not me. I'm out. Um, but 42% of these people supported the death penalty, um, which the study pointed out is lower than the last time they did a survey of this. It seems like it was going down a little bit among that generation. Um, then they did Christian millennials. So this is um, from 1980 to 2000. Um, if you're born in that range, there I am. Um, and they surveyed them and said, do you support the death penalty? And found that there was kind of a drop. So it went from 42% to 37%. And they supported that, only 37%. Um, and so they kind of analyzed that and, and tried to build a story around, look at the, the generation gap. Um, the younger it seems like we surveyed, the less it seems like they support death penalty. There's kind of been this change in culture. I thought that the more interesting part of the survey was this. They also asked people, again, everybody, so the baby boomers and the millennials, what they thought Jesus thought about the death penalty. And this was the most interesting part of the survey for me because only 5% checked that Jesus would support the death penalty. Which means a large portion of these people taking the survey checked a box that said, I'm a Christian, and then checked another box and said, I'm disagreeing with Jesus. Uh, said, I don't think Jesus would support this, but I support this. And it just kind of astounded me. I was at least hoping they saw the irony in it. When they were doing that, uh, I was like, I don't have a lot of goals for my church, little FCQ, but one of them surely is that people won't go in public and say I'm a Christian, but I disagree with Jesus. Um, and it, it kind of, to me, reflected this sense of separation that we have between um, the idea of, of, of kind of what we think it means to be a Christian um, in kind of our larger culture of Christianity, and then how much is expected of us? How much we're supposed to uh, uh, adhere to Jesus and to his beliefs? Now, I'm not, I don't want to talk about death penalty this morning. That's a debate, a talk for a different time, okay? Um, here's what I would say. At least, like, lie about it, right? I mean, at least try to, like, rationalize your position and say, like, don't say, yeah, I think Jesus wouldn't support it, but I'm just going to disagree with him, right? I mean, to me, that, that communicates an astonishing perception of, of how much... Uh, control and authority Jesus has in somebody's life. What does it mean to be a Christian? I think that, um, from my observations, um, what's happened sometimes is Christians reduce Jesus down to an idea or to a, a kind of a vague concept that we appreciate and that we like a lot. Um, and so when we talk about Jesus and we talk about being a Christian and following Jesus, what we mean some of the times um, implicitly between the lines is we are thankful that our sins are forgiven. And there's a sense, this therapeutic sense, if you will, that, that all the things that we've done wrong are forgiven. And, and Jesus, being a Christian, being associated with Jesus, means that we've received that and accepted that and enjoy that kind of forgiveness. But there's a separation from Jesus and his teachings and, and from kind of what he might desire for us to do and, and act like and talk like and live like in this life. Or, or for others, perhaps Jesus has been reduced to this kind of idea of love. We're supposed to love, be generally kind, nice people, be the kind of people who open doors for others and leave good tips, um, and not the kind of people who yell at people on the road or other things like that. Um, it gets kind of reduced down to this feel good and, and be nice and be kind to everybody. Just 
you know, be an upstanding citizen, be the, be the Ned Flanders of the world, okay? Um, or, and I think this is just as common, uh, Jesus gets reduced to this hope, this general sense that I'm going to go to heaven after I die, that, that this life is not all there is for me. There's this hope for the afterlife for me. Um, again, not much connection with this life and with perhaps what Jesus would want me to, to do or to say or to think or to believe in, in this life. And in, in this sense, I think what happens, if we're not careful, is Jesus stops being a person that we are called to follow and becomes an idea that we appreciate. Um, and and we, we lose this sense of um, lordship, and we lose this sense of Jesus' authority, where he comes to people and says, follow me. Um, go where I go. Think what I think. View the world the way I view the world. Let me be your lord, your king, your master. And, and submit your life in all aspects, in all respects to, to me. And instead, we feeling naturally that this maybe is going to demand a lot of us, we say, well, well maybe, what's the lowest common denominator that maybe we can squish this down to, um, that we can get to? The disciples here uh, pretty much abandon their lives when Jesus comes to them. It's very interesting to me um, that Jesus comes and, and to these two groups of brothers um, with family and with jobs and, and with a whole life set up, he says, follow me, and they just leave everything. I mean, they just kind of abandon their, their whole lives, and they, they follow Jesus. And in the gospel accounts, there's no reason really given. It doesn't say what they were thinking about. It doesn't say how they made this decision. Um, it doesn't say because he had done lots of miracles, they decided that this would be a worthwhile use of their time, or because this or that, or Jesus talked to their parents and was like, hey, it's okay, they're going to come with me, I'm a really nice guy, it'll all work out. Um, he just comes, and it's kind of mysterious. And it's kind of unexplainable. There's kind of the sense of the authority um, and command of Jesus here as he comes to somebody. And, and there's this mysterious encounter that the disciples have um, where they say, okay. And they submit their lives and they leave. I mean, they leave everything they have. Um, their commitment to their family, their jobs, their entire lives. I think perhaps the Gospels write this story this way on purpose. Because even in our own lives, there's this kind of unexplainableness sometimes to the call of Jesus. And there's this sense where, where even if it maybe doesn't make quite sense to ourselves or to people around us, in some way we've had this encounter with Christ and we've heard his calling on our life and we feel that tug and, and in some sense we go, okay, I'll follow. Okay, I'll submit. Um, I'll run after you. I'll, I'll acknowledge that you are a person for me to follow and not just an idea for me to, to appreciate. Um, I think this is why it's so important to, to emphasize Jesus' resurrection. Um, and not be, as we called it before, kind of a vampire Christian, right? He's just in it for the blood. He's just in it for his death. And he loses out on the idea and the, the fact of the New Testament, which would say that Jesus is alive right now, the whole point of the resurrection. He's still alive. He's still on the move. He's still working. And he's still coming to people like you and I, like Simon and Andrew, like John and James, and saying, follow me. I've got a place for you to go. I've got things for you to do. I've got a life that I want you to adopt. But to do that, you might have to make sacrifices, and you might have to leave things behind. You might have to walk out in, in waters that perhaps look foreboding to you. And Jesus comes and he says uh, to follow. The question I would want to ask this morning is um, one of perception, one of kind of self-evaluation. Um, and that is, in your own life, have you found that um, being a Christian involves 
following Christ in, in tangible ways, um, in ways in which cause you to sacrifice, in ways that which cause you to act or believe or talk in ways that, that maybe you're not naturally inclined to act or talk or believe. Um, there's this sense that you have met this living person and decided to follow them, and it's led to this different lifestyle for you. Or have we reduced Jesus down to this kind of idea that we appreciate, um, like a memorial service? I think this is the danger with churches, to realize that church, a church setting, is not a memorial service where we come and remember um, someone who, who was influential in the past, but it's a time where we come and worship the risen Lord who's influential right now, and he's moving right now, and he's calling you and I to, to move with him right now. Um, so the disciples actually pack up their bags, and they follow Jesus. For us, it's a little bit different, and, and perhaps this is one of the reasons why um, we get tied up a little bit more, maybe. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it look like to follow Christ? What does it mean um, tangibly to be a Christian in our world? Luckily, though, the scriptures give us uh, speeches and sermons by Jesus where he gives pretty clear instructions on, on what it means to follow him, where he gives kind of marching orders and, and kind of the constitution of what it means to be his disciple. What kind of life does this look like for someone who's, who's submitted themselves to Christ? Um, we have the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 5 through 7, which I think is the kind of hinge on, on Jesus' instructions here. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, um, here's the kind of life that, that will result. Here are the kind of things I'm looking for, um, the kind of things we're going after. Um, a couple of years ago, I got asked to speak at a school staff development retreat, and, and um, Chris was going to lead worship, and, and I was going to preach. And so they kind of just gave us this time slot, and we're like, just figure something out. You sing, you say something cute, and then we'll, we'll break and we'll go on to the next thing. And so we were brainstorming about what we might do, and I thought, what if, and I'd seen this somewhere else, it wasn't my idea, um, but I thought, what if I just got up and re-preached one of Jesus' sermons uh, and, and just kind of like, kind of reenacted it, kind of a step beyond just reading, but a step below like coming up with something cute myself, right? And just kind of got up and, and re-enacted, re-preached the words of Jesus. And we're like, okay, that could work. And we kind of toyed around with it. And so, so what we ended up doing was I, I got up and I, I preached a Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it was interesting. It was a very interesting experience. Um, and uh, one that I think was, was good. It was good for me. I think it was good for others. Um, <clears throat> it was interesting because we didn't clue people in on what we were doing. And so... Uh, I'm not sure everyone figured it out, to be honest. Uh, afterwards, some people came up and were congratulating me in ways which made it seem like I had come up with some of these things. Uh, I was like, well, I can't take full credit, but yeah, you're right, it was a good sermon. Uh, it was interesting. I, Chris will remember this. Um, we were in the little hotel room before service, and I was nervous um, because I'm reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going, you, know, you don't realize this until you're about to say it to a room full of 200, 300 people. But some of these things are really intense. I mean, some of these things are probably not things I would say to people if I was writing a sermon. Even if I had this kind of conclusion, right? I'm, I mean, I'm very passive-aggressive Southern hospitality, right? We'll say I hate you with a handshake and a smile. Um, I mean, that's just how we run things down here. Uh, I, I would never be this blunt and this afford people. Even if I thought this, I would come at it like a much different angle. And I'm, I'm knowing who's out there, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, I, I don't want to say that. To them. I mean, I want to, to put this a different way. Um, you kind of realize the impact um, of, of what's going on here. And, and you notice other things about, about Jesus' sermons. You notice um, that there's a lot of humor in his sermons, and there's a lot of everydayness, and there's a lot of simplicity. 
And sometimes I think that's what disturbs us the most, is it's so simple and straightforward um, that it's, it's hard to get around some of these things that he says um, without ignoring it. Uh, it's much easier to push it to the side and emphasize other things than to try to rationalize uh, and try to twist um, to not be confronted. Um, it was well received, like I said, um, and it was pretty funny, I, I think. So you can see during it, because I didn't, I didn't intro it at all, I just kind of got off and went for it. Um, people started to figure it out, though. If they were more well-read in their scriptures, and, and people started to turn there and read along. And then again, I don't think some people caught on, which is even more hilarious to me. Um, <clears throat> I'm happy to take credit for it. The, the key to, to re-preaching Jesus sermons is, uh, I mean, in one sense, you could be just kind of lazy, right? I mean, you're just kind of doing someone else's work. In other sense, though, I've sometimes spent 30 hours on a sermon, and it was a dud, right? But this is time-tested, right? I mean, this is good stuff. Uh, I mean, you're kind of guaranteed not to waste someone's time um, by reading them, by, by reenacting um, a full-on sermon here um, that you have from Jesus. And there are some benefits that I didn't expect um, in my own life and in others' lives um, from this experience. And, and so um, kind of how I framed it was, okay, we talk about following Christ and getting our students to follow Christ, but what does that look like? Have we substituted our own ideas for what it looks like to follow Christ um, or, or can we go back to the source and, and see what Jesus says about what following him, what that looks like? Um, one of the benefits was there's something, I think, to hearing scriptures um, that allows us to get something out of it different than just reading the scriptures. Um, so if you think about it, the scriptures, and particularly Jesus' sermons, are meant to be heard, right? I mean, this was at one time performed by Jesus to crowds, to these big, massive crowds, probably multiple occasions as he traveled around and preached. It's probably something he did over and over and over again. Um, it was a performance. It was a sermon. It was, it was meant to be heard. And you hear things differently than you read things. Um, when you read things, you have to put your own kind of pace to it, right? And you put your own kind of like mental tone if you're, if you're reading in your head, um, but, but when you are listening, the speaker gives tone and gives pace. And there are different things that you hear, and there are different parts of speech that you connect to each other. Um, I mean, you could easily take a passage or a verse or a sentence or paragraph and read it in a few different tones and with some different paces and, and see the big difference, right, that it might make in, in how it's received, how the message is received. Um, and the scriptures, even when they're written down, are meant to be heard and listened to. This is a culture that was highly illiterate. Um, even when Matthew records some of Jesus' sermons, he's not recording them so that um, people will go read them on their own. He's recording them so that one person will read it aloud to the community, um, who most likely most of them can't read, and so they listen. Um, in libraries, even up until the Middle Ages, libraries were known for being noisy places. Um, it's actually a very modern thing to read without making noise. Um, so I grew up reading, and it was a quiet thing, right? I mean, when I'm reading, I read in my mind, in my head. There's like a like a voice that plays in my mind sounds way better than the voice that comes out. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you hear yourself and you're like, wait a minute, that's not what I sound like in there. I sound a lot more like uh, Sam Rockwell, Matt Damon in my mind. <clears throat> On tape, I just sound annoying. I'm like, who is this kid? Tell him to be quiet. Um, but we kind of do this mental. We read to ourselves. Um, libraries were known for being noisy, though, because you would murmur. You would, you would read it under your breath. I mean, even the whole idea of just keeping inside of you um, and personally reading. It's a very new kind of way to approach a text. Um, we have taken kind of the oral tradition out of it. Um, so hearing it, I think, was a, a, an interesting aspect to it. Also, I think the scriptures, in large part, are meant to be consumed in bigger chunks than we sometimes do. 
So if we were going to study the, the Sermon on the Mount, what we might do is break it up into like a thousand different verses, right? And, and look at those verses one by one and explain them. When sometimes seeing the whole thing at once, right, gives you a different picture. You connect different things. Um, this is a sermon. These are sermons that are meant to be uh, together. So here's what I want to do this morning, okay? With this question on the table, what does it mean to follow Christ? Have we really submitted ourselves to following him or have we kind of replaced um, a robust discipleship, a robust following after him with kind of a, a lesser idea maybe um, of what it means to be his? Um, with that question on the table, I want to this morning um, again uh, read to you the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so um, perhaps maybe this morning you try to transport yourself, okay? What would it be like to be there on that mountain as Jesus is preaching? Um, there are a few places that I would want to be in history and listen to and experience. Now, this would be one of them. I think of Luther King Jr.'s uh, I Have a Dream speech. I mean, how amazing would it be to be there and listen and see and experience? Um, I would encourage you this morning just to listen. If you wanted to read along, you're more than welcome to. It's in Matthew 5-7. through um, this is Jesus, again, I think answering the question of what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be his disciples? So um, this is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps the best sermon ever preached. Um, much better than, than something I could prepare in a week. So here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who came before you in the same way. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by people. You are the light of the world. A city located on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all the house in the same way Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter will pass from the law until everything comes to pass. So anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands or teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who obeys them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the experts in the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to an older generation, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with their brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever insults a brother will be brought before the council. And whoever says fools to their brother will be liable to the fiery hell. So then, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar First, go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come back 
and present your gifts. Reach agreement quickly with your accuser while you're on your way to the court, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the warden, and you will be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you won't get out until you've paid every last penny. And you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust in their hearts has already committed adultery. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It was said, whoever divorces his wife must do so legally with a certificate. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except for immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it was said to an older generation, don't break any oaths, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, don't take oaths at all. Not by heaven, because it's the throne of God. Not by earth, because it's his footstool. And not by Jerusalem, which is the city of the great king. Don't take an oath by your head, because you're not able to make one hair white or black. This is before hair dye. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. Whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, give to him your cloak also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and do not reject to the one who borrows from you. When you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be like your Father in heaven, since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the righteous, and he sends rain on the grateful and on the wicked. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? And if you only greet your brothers, what more do you do? Even the Gentiles do the same, don't they? So then... Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Thus, whenever you do charitable giving, don't blow a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in synagogues and on streets so that people will praise them. I tell you the truth, they already have their reward. But when you do your giving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your gifts may be done in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who stand on the street corners and love to pray with people watching them. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble repetitiously like the Gentiles, because they think with their many words they'll be heard. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray like this, our Father in heaven. May your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we ourselves forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others of their sins, your Father will forgive you of your sins. But if you do not forgive others, your Father also will not forgive you. 
When you fast, don't look sullen like the hypocrites, for they make faces unattractive so that people will see them fasting. I tell you the truth, they've already had their rewards. When you fast, put oil on your face to wash yourself so it won't be obvious to other people that you're fasting. Only to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't accumulate for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But accumulate for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If your eye is diseased, your whole body will be full of darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or wear. Isn't there more to life than food and clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, and yet our Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? And which of you, by worrying, can even add a single hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothing? Think about how the flowers of the field grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. They don't gain. And yet, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of them. And if this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today, and tomorrow is tossed into the fire to heat the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you little faith? So then don't worry, saying, what will we eat? And what will we drink? And what will we wear? For the unconverted pursue these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Above all, seek his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So then, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For by the standard that you judge others... You will be judged, and by the measure that you use will be the measure which you receive. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye while there's a beam in your own? You hypocrite. First remove the beam from your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's. Don't give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before pigs. They'll trample them under their feet. They'll turn around and devour you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would throw him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? In everything... Treat others in the same way that you would desire to be treated, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. And enter through the narrow gate, because the gate is wide and the way is spacious that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, but how narrow is the gate, and how difficult the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are voracious wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorns, nor figs from thistles. And in the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree is not able to bear bad fruit, and a bad tree is not able to bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You'll recognize them by their fruit. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, lots will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons and do powerful deeds? And I'll say to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the flood came and the winds beat against the house, but it did not collapse because it was built on the rock. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the flood came and the winds beat against that house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. Matthew records when Jesus finishes the sermon that the crowds are amazed. Uh, they leave remarking to themselves and to others about the authority that Jesus preaches with, about this way of life that he has called his disciples to. Um, this morning I would ask, I would desire you and I to reflect and, and, and self-evaluate and would ask ourselves, to what extent we have surrendered our lives to Christ? To what extent um, are we in our day-to-day lives on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday following him, um, being his disciples in the world around us? There's a, a danger for us that, that we forget that Jesus is a person to follow and not just an idea to appreciate, not just benefits, spiritual benefits to gain. Um, Jesus, who, who, who preached these words so long ago, is still alive and is still on the move and is still coming to, to men and women and children like you and I and saying, follow me. And I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. I've got things for you to do. And, and for you and I, the call is for us to respond and to respond in obedience and faithfulness and say, we will follow you. We will hear your voice and we will um, go be your disciples in the world around us. Would you pray with me?